T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hello, folks. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock along with studio coordinator Jonathan Lowe. Jonathan and I just kind of chatting off air before we get on this program because we want to make sure that we hit these special reports from CBS uh, on Irma. And right now, and Jonathan, I know you, you, you're a meteorologist, so you, you've been following this. And, and I've been trying. This. Yeah. I, 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 it, it not just, as much as people I know that are also meteorologists. Well, I know, but um, it, it looks like it's going to hit Florida uh, sometime early Sunday morning. Yes. Early tomorrow morning. Yeah, right now it's still hovering on the, the eye is still hovering on the north shore just off the north shore of cuba um and it looks like it is past east of my i'm sorry west of miami um so now it's starting to barely take that turn so it's gonna it's gonna hit the western coast more that that that's yes, the trajectory that's, has, has changed yes and that's the thing with this system and, and any hurricane uh it's really more guided by the rotation of the earth right plus any sort of systems that are near it. So this high pressure center that was over the Atlantic Ocean, that has been guiding these the this system and then also Jose, which is behind it, uh, headed toward, I believe, the Leeward Islands again. So uh, when you get that guiding force to okay. finally turn it north, that's been the issue is when is it going to turn, make that turn right. from westerly, right. northwesterly to north? Because I, I know the, the original outlook was that it was going to nail the east coast of Florida, which yes. is the Atlantic coast. Now it's it's apparently a, a tougher hit on the west coast. Yes. And, and I, 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 I sincerely hope that, that those on the west coast are as prepared and took the kinds of steps that I think some people on the east coast were taking. And, I, you know, I just happened to run into somebody who's a – Mom, who had a child who was uh, going to college and is just sort of college in Tampa, and she had gotten her a plane ticket out, and I, so I hope she got out. But but you know, I, I, she was telling me that some of the roommates hadn't gotten it, and I wonder if you know if some people on the West Coast hadn't thought, well, gee, this is we're going to get the brunt of this. I think I think what uh, the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, was trying to say when he was, I know the focus was more on. Miami, right. uh, Sarasota, uh, uh, not Sarasota, but uh, uh, Vero Beach, Daytona Beach, going up the east, Jacksonville, going right, up the east right. coast of that state. But I think what the overarching message was, don't care where you are in Florida, yeah, they tell you time to, to go. Yeah. And, and, but I, I just wonder if it was a little bit delayed. And Anyway, I just um, – and I mentioned this yesterday when I was filling in for John Hines. I did um, – <laughs> Well, it was 25 years ago. Um, WCCO actually sent me down to cover Hurricane Andrew. Oh, and I was, um, uh, you know, I covered the aftermath of, of that hurricane. And I just, um, Homestead, Florida is south of Miami. It's sort of like right before you get to the Keys. And I will just never forget the scope of the devastation. And, you know, I've covered many horrifying tornadoes and, you know, here uh, in Oklahoma, in uh, Arkansas and Tennessee. And there it's more sort of a hopscotch effect. You know, the devastation, it seems sort of 
almost arbitrary or capricious, you know, maybe a few houses are left and then it, it gets wiped out. This was just utter devastation and we are certainly praying and hoping uh, that this does not turn out to be as severe as everyone thought. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're actually going to be joined by uh, an official with NOAA, the National um, Weather Service, to talk to us about uh, the latest with Hurricane Irma. It is 614 here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, the upper Midwest. Uh, we are all monitoring the situation with Irma. And we are very grateful to have Dennis Falcon. He is with NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric uh, Administration. And he is also a former uh, Miami TV reporter and now emergency advisor to most municipalities in South Florida, also president of the News Director's PR firm. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you're very busy down there. Yes, a busy night. And also not former Miami uh uh, correspondent, but former Twin Cities for 12 years. Wow. Okay. Now, which station were you at? I was at two. I was at KSTP uh, for eight and a half years, and I was at KARE, although it was WUSA when I started, uh, and the Washington station stole our call letters, and there's a whole funny story behind that for another time. But right. uh, 12 years uh, in the Twin Cities, and I can't wait to retire. My wife and I are still coming back to Minnesota. Well, you know, you know something, actually, Paul Douglas, who was now the uh, former KARE uh, broadcaster, you know, meteorologist, also right. WCCO-TV. Right, and I worked together in the late 80s. Well, I worked with him when he was at WCCO-TV. He's actually written a, a very good book, and I've talked about this on the air before, called Caring for Creation. And one of the things that he wrote, and it's a book about climate change aimed at people who might be more conservative. And one of the things he writes about is that Minnesota is actually one of the winners here in, in terms of climate change. But that's another story. Dennis, uh, so grateful to talk to you. First of all, where are you right now? Uh, I am uh, right now in uh, south-central Broward County in Miramar, uh, just about 10 miles north of the Hurricane Center. I'm taking a break and come home because I've got my wife and two Yorkies here, and I had to make sure my house was all boarded up and ready to go. All right. Uh, We live the hurricane problem at work just like everybody else does in South Florida. All right. Well, let me ask you, Dennis. First of all, the news today is that the hurricane has taken a more westerly route, more westerly track, and that it is, in fact, Tampa, not Miami, that will actually be in the eye of the storm. Obviously, this is all still developing. Are people on the west coast of Florida ready? I believe they are. I certainly hope they are. Uh, we, uh, were, we knew that this storm was going to take a northerly turn. It was just a matter of where and when was it going to do that. The storm last night decided to stay on a more westerly track and skirt the coast of Cuba, and it got to the same longitude as Miami. So we knew, okay, the east coast was off the hook. But now it is beginning to take that northward turn, and it puts the west coast of Florida squarely in its sight. And that is a big problem. While it was over the northern coast of Cuba, the winds actually came down from a strong Category 4, almost Category 5, down to a Category 3. And I kept seeing things on social media, hey, the storm is weakening, we're off the hook. Oh my gosh, it couldn't be further from the truth. We knew once it made that northward turn, it would be going over the really warm water of the Florida Straits. That water is almost 90 degrees. Oh, wow. And we have, yeah, and we have hurricane higher planes that are flying into it right now, and they're seeing the air pressure dropping in the okay. center of the storm, the ice. So we know it's strengthening. This is going to be a Category 4 hurricane going over the Florida Keys and then uh, impacting going directly over southwest or west-central Florida coastline, including Tampa. All right. So, so, so Dennis, uh, can you give us a timeline, so the latest timeline about when it's supposed to directly hit 
uh, the Florida Keys and then also make that turn and going up into uh, western Florida? Sure. The, the storm is making its turn now from the from the west to west-northwest. It's going to go more northwest as we get into the overnight hours tonight and early Sunday, and that will have it the eye of the storm, the center, crossing the Florida Keys probably just before sunrise and as a Category 4 hurricane. Then it's going to continue to move more to the north-northwest and be very near or over the southwest Florida coastline during the day on Sunday. So places like Captiva and Sanibel, where so many Minnesotans love to be. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sarasota. Yes. And it's going to go over them, and it will go over Tampa as we get into the late afternoon and evening hours. But wind, I really want to emphasize this, wind isn't the, you know, wind is going to be a big deal. This is a major hurricane, but it's the storm surge that's really got me concerned. This is uh, one of the worst-case scenarios for storm surge. Uh, we mentioned Captiva and, and, and Dennis, let me ask you, yeah. why is that? I mean, I, I was, I, and I mentioned, you know, just before we got uh, to you, 25 years ago, I actually went down and covered the aftermath of Andrew. And I just, I, I, I will never forget it, looking at Homestead, Florida, and, and the utter devastation there. Why, why is the, the concern about storm surge so much greater with this storm as opposed to even Andrew, which was a Category 5? Well, remember the direction that Andrew came in from. It came directly from the east and went right across the south part of the extreme south part of the Florida Peninsula. And actually, half of its uh, track across the Florida Peninsula was over the Everglades. But it came in from the east, so you had a north wind, so it really didn't have much time to pile up the water along the coast. This one is coming from the south. So what happens is, as the storm moves south, the back end of the hurricane takes the water and pushes it onto the coastline. So we're looking at right now, we're forecasting at least 10 to 15 feet of inundation from Captiva and Sanibel all the way down to Cape Sable. Now that's 10 to 15 feet of water over normally dry ground. So if you stand five feet tall, you've got 10 feet of water over your head. That's what that means. And that is not survivable. And we're looking at five to eight feet of storm surge in Tampa Bay. That puts the that puts the Tampa Bay the water into the streets of downtown Tampa. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and in terms of the winds, uh, what kind of wind speed are we looking at? Right now, it's sitting at 125 miles per hour. I think that may go up when the eight, uh, seven p.m. Central, eight o'clock Eastern intermediate advisory comes out. Uh, so that'll put it up to a Category Four. It, we are forecasting at least 140 mile per hour winds as it gets up to and moves over the Keys. And it's expected to remain at least a Category 3, a major hurricane, all the way up the west coast of Florida and even up into areas like Ocala and Chiefland. Okay, and Ocala is, is what, what are cities that... Uh, Ocala is uh, uh, just north of I-4. There, there's an interstate which runs from Tampa to Daytona Beach. Okay. You get about halfway and you turn north, maybe about another 50 miles, you run into Ocala. Okay. And, and uh, do, you, do you think it will hit the Pensacola area, or is it pretty... I don't think it'll go that far, no, but I am concerned about Tallahassee. Okay. Tallahassee will probably see hurricane force winds, and, and the coast along there, just south of Tallahassee, does have a hurricane uh, watch, I believe. It'll go to warning here pretty soon. Okay. But, but, but again, um, you know, and I know, uh, you know, I've been watching, you know, TV all day and, and watching the briefings, uh, 
do you really believe, as somebody who knows Florida, that those in that, for instance, Tallahassee area and those coastal areas on, on, on the West Coast and that Gulf really um, have gotten the message and, and have gotten out in time? Well, uh, they haven't ordered anything yet, but I think, remember last year, they had Hurricane Hermine up in that area in the Panhandle. And that was the first hurricane to strike Florida in 11 years. And, it, and so Tallahassee area got its first hurricane in a long time. So that was a little wake-up call. Okay. Now, this one it has the potential of having much stronger winds than Hermine ever did uh, when it made landfalls. So I, and I've got family up in the Tallahassee area, and I was on the phone with them in the last half hour, and I said, yeah, this is going to be... This is going to be much different than Hermine. This will be stronger. So we'll, we'll make the call in the morning whether they need to get out of there or not. Okay. And the building codes up in the North Florida are very different than the stronger building codes in South Florida. So I would be concerned about that, too. All right. We're chatting with Dennis Falcon. He is a former reporter here in the Twin Cities, also a former Miami TV reporter. He's with NOAA Public Affairs. Um Dennis, one of the things that I find a little just unbelievable is that there are two other hurricanes out there, uh, Katya and Jose, I believe. Well, I have good news and bad news on that. Okay. The good news is we wrote the last advisory on Katya this morning. It moved inland uh, on the east Texas coast and has uh, broken up into a big rain system. So we're done with Katya. Uh, the bad news is we're still dealing with Jose, uh, that's a that's a Category 4 hurricane, which is uh, very close to the northern Leeward Islands, in the same area that just got pounded by Irma not too many days ago. Uh, so that they're dealing with that tonight. That's going to be moving to the north uh, into the open ocean, but we may not be done with it yet. It's going to kind of sit there and do this slow loop. There's some computer models to try and bring it to the east coast of Florida in about uh, eight days. So All right, so this is this is eight days out, but 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 that so that is still as far as Noah's concerned, that is still something that that is of, of real concern. Oh sure, yeah, and we have another disturbance which moved off the coast of Africa, very typical for this time of the year. That one's being watched closely. That could become tropical storm or even hurricane Lee down the road. But the good news on that is it's what we call a fish storm. That one should stay out in the Atlantic and not bother anybody. All right, in terms of you know, and going back to Andrew. Um, I guess what I've heard people say is that this is just physically bigger. It's a larger oh, much mass. Bigger. I mean, oh yes, much bigger. You said you were down, you had uh, saw the devastation with Andrew. Remember the devastation? I, I feel like it was. I, I can still see the images, yeah. and I, I've covered yeah. an awful lot of things over the years, and I, I just right. I've never seen anything like Andrew. Yeah, where it's just somebody took the, the back of their hand and just wiped the landscape. That's Absolutely, that's that's a good yeah. way to describe it. But it was really confined to South Miami-Dade County. If the North Miami-Dade County, it's like, what happened? There, there, nothing happened at all. It was a really small storm. This one is a big one. The eye is 40 miles across, 40 miles. Wow. Hurricane force winds extend out 70 miles from the eye, and the tropical storm force winds extend out almost 200 miles from the eye. So you're talking a 350 to 400-mile-wide diameter hurricane as compared to Andrew, which was barely about 150 miles wide. Wow. Big difference. Right. Let me ask you, and Dennis, because you, you worked, uh, you know, in, in television in South Florida, and I'm thinking, like, before I got the job here, I, I actually had an offer in, in Miami, and 
Kind of glad that I didn't take it. Uh, yeah, but, I never did TV in Miami. Most of, I did it briefly in West Palm Beach, but most of my tenure was in Tampa, and and then the majority of it was in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, I think I think most people though are wondering: Do you have any insights into how the, these these television organizations are, are covering the storm in terms of keeping their people safe? Because I'm looking at some of these situations and thinking this doesn't look good. Uh, there was a CNN reporter in Cuba, and I thought. Golly gee, Moses, oh, yeah. don't go to one. <laughs> I saw that one, too. I saw that one, too. And, and I'll tell you a quick anecdote on that. When I worked at KSTP, it was Stanley Hubbard, a uh, genius when it came to looking Still is. In television. Still is, right. Uh, and he invented satellite news gathering. Pretty much invented it. He, he built the satellite trucks in the middle 80s, and people thought, you know, what is this guy doing? And he built his own network of TV stations that would supply stories every day. He had his own network. It was called CODIS. And one day I was in his office, this was in 1985, and I said, you know, you could cover a hurricane. What do you mean? Well, you got a truck there, a truck there, and a truck there, and you can do it. He says, well, one day we'll have to do that. Well, six weeks later, we've got Hurricane Elena in the Gulf, and all of a sudden I pulled off vacation, and I got to meet a crew from KSDP and meet him in New Orleans. So we go there, (laughs) and we figured, okay, this is a two-day odyssey, end of story. But no, Elena loops goes back towards Florida. So we go over there, then it loops back. Long story short, it took six days instead of two days. But I was one of those idiots in the infancy of satellite television standing out there in the middle of the hurricane while it's raging around me. And well, I look back and think, what was I thinking? Well, we are glad you're still with us. We are so grateful for your time this evening. Thank you so much, Dennis Felkin, uh, NOAA Public Affairs. Take care Thank and be so safe. All right. All right, folks, we do have to take a quick break. We'll do weather and then also a special report from CBS. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 34 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Again, we will continue to monitor the situation in South Florida. We will be taking live updates at the top and bottom of the hour on the progress of Hurricane Irma that is now taking a more westerly route. Instead of Miami being at the eye of the storm, there are now, there is now the belief that it would actually be Tampa that is going to get the most direct hit in terms of a major city. Uh, do want to talk about an issue that, that is actually <laughs> with all of this weather and, you know, all, the crises both in Harvey and Irma has sort of taken sort of a backseat in terms of the news cycle, but certainly it is one that obviously is going to rear its head again, and that is North Korea. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago that the uh, North Koreans uh, tested, successfully tested apparently a nuclear bomb that could be mounted on an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, last month, uh, when they had tested another missile, uh, President Trump issued sort of a dire warning, uh, basically saying that if North Korea did anything provocative, that that would be met with fire and fury, the likes of which the world had never seen. Well, certainly, certainly the uh, detonation or the testing of a nuclear bomb okay. is is certainly provocative to say the least, yet so far the U.S. has not really responded in kind. We are grateful to have Gordon Chang. He is the author of Nuclear Showdown. He has been kind enough to join us in the past. Uh, he is an expert on North Korea uh, to join us to talk about really what the situation is and what could happen next. Gordon Chang, thank you so much for coming on. 
Well, thank you so much. I'm grateful to be on your air. All right. Well, listen, you, you've been so great uh, to join us here. But let me ask you, and, and certainly the, the, the crisis, the crisis with North Korea has been uh, certainly bumped off of the headlines because of the situation with Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Irva, um, Hurricane Harvey. What what is your take on on sort of what happened in the aftermath of that nuclear bomb being tested by North Korea? I think the most important thing is galvanize the Trump administration to propose an extremely strict U.N. Security Council resolution, which we will put forth on Monday. Now, the Chinese and the Russians are not going to agree to it. They are thinking of some concessions to the United States. So, for instance, China's thinking of a partial um, stoppage of oil um, shipments, maybe a reduction of some sort. Um, The Russians have been making trouble in the background. But nonetheless, uh, the administration does appear that it is going to go forward uh, and is going to try to pressure the North Koreans and the Chinese, uh, North Koreans, the Chinese and the Russians. And let, let me ask you this, because there's been a lot said, a lot written about exactly how much leverage China has. You, you're the expert here. You know, you've written about this, your book, Nuclear Showdown. You've studied this. What is your opinion about the kind of leverage that China has? I think that China has overwhelming leverage over North Korea. And it's not just trade. China accounts for more than 90 percent of two-way trade, supplies more than 90 percent of North Korea's requirements of crude oil, much of it on concessionary terms, supplies much more than half of investment into North Korea, and indeed somewhere between 35 to 45 percent of North Korea's food, which is especially important this year because of the drought is the worst since 2001. But the most important thing that Beijing supplies is confidence to regime elements that they're safe from the United States and the rest of the international community. I don't think that Beijing could ever convince Kim Jong-un to give up his nukes, but that's almost not important. What China can do is it can convince those who are around Kim, who are the important regime figures, to abandon support for the weapons programs. And indeed, Kim can't run the country by himself. So China, if it wanted to, could tell the North Koreans, just not even by talking to them, but just by mentioning things in public through media, that it was no longer going to tolerate the North Korea's um, nuke and missile programs. All right. Well, you just said something that, that that really interests me because I think I think you know uh, for people like myself who try and follow the news here, we've read about uh, Kim Jong Un, who is still a young man in his early thirties. Uh, he's apparently killed his uncle, his half brother. You're saying that he is not governing the country by himself; that there are people around him, but aren't they? They must be scared to death. Well, they certainly are, because Kim Jong-un has put to death um, some 150, 160 senior officials. And when we add in... He's, he's junior, put to death 150 senior officials, so it's, it's, it's way beyond you know, the uncle and the, the half-brother. Oh, oh certainly. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, uh, Tak, um, the uncle, and uh, Kim Jong-un, the half-brother, are only the most visible uh, signs of that. But in terms of senior officials, both military and civilian, the death toll is somewhere around 155, 160. Um, but when we add in junior officials who we don't know about, some Korea analysts think that the death toll could be somewhere in the five to 600 range. This has been an extremely bloody regime as Kim Jong-un has tried to consolidate power. And of course, that intimidates the people around Kim, but it also gives them an incentive to get rid of Kim 
or to look out for themselves. And so I think that that has loosened the bonds of loyalty in the regime. You know, Kim Jong-il, his father uh, and his predecessor, um, was able to govern without the successive death toll. And so I think that uh, the regime has been weakened. And that means China has inordinate influence if it wants to use it. Now, the relations between Beijing and Pyongyang are tense, no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean the Chinese don't have influence. They do if they want to use it. And there are signs that when Beijing wants something, the North Koreans comply. All right. And, and, and why isn't Beijing? Because, I mean, they have to feel threatened as well. I mean, they're a lot closer. <laughs> if they, they've got a nuclear capable, you know, the, a, a nuclear ICBM, it's not a, that far from North Korea to China. I mean, why isn't what's holding China back? Well, um, first of all, and I agree with you that long term, there is no country that is disadvantaged more by Kim Jong-un than China. But short term, the Chinese get some very important benefits from North Korean provocations, because every time North Korea does something provocative, we then send a senior envoy to Beijing, plead for their cooperation. We stop talking about things that are important to us, like trade, like human rights, human, well, human rights. South China Sea, cyber attacks, you name it. So, you know, everyone says these Chinese leaders are long-term thinkers. I actually don't think that that's true, because this is an example where China benefits short-term, but is disadvantaged long-term. And the other point about this is that there are elements in the Chinese leadership who support Kim Jong-un, such as the military, maybe even Xi Jinping himself, the Chinese ruler. A lot of elements of the Chinese leadership doesn't. But the military uh, is the one that counts here. So they're getting to call the tune on China's North Korea policy. All right. You know, I I, um, have spoken a number of times recently with a woman who is actually um, a former University of Minnesota regent. And she has an extraordinary story where her family was actually um, in South Korea and in the chaos uh, of the 1950s uh, aftermath of the Civil War. Her father, who was an elite, he's actually an executive at Samsung ended up taking the family north instead of south. And she actually, at the age of four, was left sort of left behind. And she's formed an organization to help refugees and, and she um, in North Korea. And she has written extensively and talked to me about her concern about the, the – she estimates there are 300,000 North Korean refugees who are sort of living underground in China and that if they are found out by the Chinese re- uh, regime, they are often just returned back to China. Is that something – I mean, is that the way you see things? Is that an accurate portrayal? Well, certainly, um, because you have um, in the – you know, the border between Korea and China has moved hundreds of miles in both directions over the course of millennia. And um, because of that, you have a large ethnic Korean population in the northeastern provinces of China. Um, and because of that, you can have North Koreans blend in in China. And there is an enormously large population. I don't know exactly what the number is, but uh, we know that there are large networks, for instance, of Christian pastors who um, devote their lives to protecting um, North Koreans who have fled to China, but who haven't gotten beyond those provinces. And this is an important dynamic because um, you have this flow of people back and forth between China and North Korea. It really changes the situation in many respects. And and of course, um, it is interesting because here you have um, North Koreans who have, have gotten to the point of relative freedom in China. All right. But are, are they, are most of them sort of living underground, sort of 
or are they sort of, you know, have full status as, as citizens of China? No, they don't. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons that makes them vulnerable. Um, and so, um, so they're sort of you know, like the uh, undocumented population here of our immigrants. Uh, except that it's, it's, it's very different because um, the United States is not very uh, rigorous in repatriating um, um, illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants. Um, but in China, um, when they catch you, it, it's really quite horrible. But, you know, nonetheless... And are they sent back to North Korea? They're sent back to North Korea, where um, oftentimes they are uh, put into what are effectively concentration camps. Um, women who have Chinese um, children, um, those children are at really at risk um, because there is this enmity between the Chinese and the Koreans. Uh, North Koreans who come back pregnant get forced abortions. Their children uh, are born, uh, they're born alive. You know, who knows what's going to happen to them. This is a cultural issue um, because uh, the Kim regime has really tried to crack down on, on Chinese influence in the northern part of their country. And so people, North Koreans who are repatriated, um, by the way, repatriated against China's obligations on human rights covenants, those people who are repatriated are really at risk, and some of them are actually executed. Wow. Okay. That's well. That's that's exactly what this woman, Yan Kim, was was telling me about. Um, chatting with Gordon Chang, he is really a preeminent uh, expert on the issue of North Korea. Uh, Gordon, we have to take a quick break here, but when we come back, I'd like to ask you more about. You mentioned that that your, one of your hopes is that that there can be pressure put on the the people who are around Kim Jong Un. Um, I'd like to ask you more about that and and what we know about this man who, again, is still a young man but seems to be operating uh, sort of shooting from the hip and also the reaction in the region to President Donald Trump. Keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 6.50 in the Twin Cities. We are privileged this evening to be chatting with Gordon Chang. He is the author of Nuclear Showdown. He is one of the nation's preeminent experts on North Korea. Uh, I'd like to ask you, Gordon, uh, about something you said earlier is that, that you know, in, you, in terms of the way you see it, perhaps there is some way to leverage or influence those who are around Kim Jong-un. What do we know about the people who are still left around him? Because you, you described how at least 150 people who've been around him have been executed. And, and do we have the kinds of intelligence uh, on this kind of a, an issue? Well, the United States does not have very much in the way of good intelligence on the North Korean regime. The Chinese do. Um, maybe the Russians do. Um, but as they say, uh, North Korea is a hard target. And so, therefore, we don't have as much um, knowledge as we certainly would like. But we do know that um, senior regime elements have been coerced into supporting um, Kim Jong-un. There is not as much respect for him as there was for his father. And there wasn't as much respect for his father as there was for his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who founded the North Korean regime. But we also know that a lot of people in the regime realize that they are vulnerable if the place falls apart. And so, therefore, it's in their interest at this moment to support him. And indeed, the legitimacy of the ruling group is dependent on Kim bloodlines. So, therefore, they do stick together because they realize they want they, they don't want um, to become vulnerable um, if the place falls apart. They'd be subject to human rights um, trials, all the rest of it. Um, and, and so right now, they are sticking together, and China is giving them the means to do so. Right. And in terms of, of, you know, we know that he killed his half-brother, he killed his uncle. Um, does he have children? He has, uh, I think, two daughters right now. 
Um, and of course, he's looking for a male heir um, because uh, in a Confucian society, and there's a lot of Confucian elements to the Kim regime ideology, um, it depends on a male bloodline. And so therefore, um, he wants to have his child to be the fourth ruler in the Kim regime. He does have a, a brother, Kim Jong-chol, um, and also Kim Jong-nam, who was assassinated in February. He has a son who would be eligible to be the next okay. uh, North Korean ruler. So there are, um, you know, there's a plenty of Kims um, in order to take that role. And Kim Jong-un wants to make sure that it's his child instead of somebody else's. All right. And so so one brother, well, half-brother w- was assassinated. And it was the dramatic, you know, video from, you know, that, that airport, I think it was in Thailand, where he was assassinated. Um, but that... Um, that half brother has a son, and then there actually is still a, a, a full. Is it a full brother to Kim Jong Un? And, and where is he? I mean, is he safe? Kim Jong Chol is in uh, Pyongyang. He's safe because he has no ambitions to be North Korea's ruler. Um, he's the one who is the Eric Clapton fan, um, well known for attending conference uh, concerts around Europe. Um, and indeed, invited Eric Clapton to Pyongyang, but Clapton had the good sense not to go. Um, so he is, you know, a, a potential heir, but he is uh, very much indicated he's not. He, he he's does not, not interested. Okay, and 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 that's essential for keeping him alive because if he did ever indicate that he wanted to take over, uh, he would be dead in a day or two. Right. In terms of, um, you know, is there any kind of resistance? I mean, certainly dictators, you know, throughout centuries have been the victims of assassination plots. I mean, is is that a possibility here? Well, that's always a possibility in any one-man regime like North Korea's, especially when the one man, in this case Kim Jong-un, doesn't have that same respect as others have. We know that there is instability in the regime. So, for instance, in January and February of this year, we saw a number of instances indicating turbulence at the top of the ruling group. So, for instance, the Minister of State Security, General Kim Won-hong, um, was detained and demoted. Five of his subordinates were executed. Wow. There was, as we talked about, the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in the Kuala Lumpur airport. And there also was the absence of the head of North Korea's strategic missile forces from the February 12th launch of a ballistic missile, indicating discord at the top of the military. Now, every once in a while, we will see a lot of these instances come together, but they'll be separated by periods of calm. And we're now in one of those periods of calm, but that doesn't mean that there everything is happy in Pyongyang. And indeed, some people speculate that what Kim Jong-un does uh, in terms of belligerence is intended to bolster his legitimacy at home. All right. And I know there have been a lot of, you know, sort of characterizations of him as being, you know, not terribly bright, but it strikes me that perhaps he is. I don't know how smart he is. Um, certainly ruthless. Believe, certainly ruthless, and I believe rational. You know, we often hear a lot of people say, well, he's uh, crazy. Um, but the point is that he operates under very different incentives than our leaders do. And indeed, um, he can surprise us because while he does something that might make sense inside the regime, um, that certainly is something that we would not anticipate. So Kim rulers have often got the better of us because we don't anticipate their moves. We don't understand the structure that they work in. And Kim Jong-un um, has a lot. When he came to power in December 2011 on the death of his father, which was unexpected, there was uh, you know, real questions whether he could consolidate power. 
to his credit, he has done that. Um, and as uh, President Trump said, he's a smart cookie. I think that that assessment on the part of our president, I wouldn't have said it in those terms. I wouldn't have mentioned it at all. But I think Trump was correct in his view that Kim Jong-un is indeed capable. Wow. All right. Well, listen, Gordon Chang, uh, the author of Nuclear Showdown, uh, we certainly appreciate your insights. I know you've been kind enough to join us before. We certainly appreciate this. Obviously, this is uh, a concern, a topic of international policy that is not going to be going away anytime soon. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Oh, well, thank you. All right, absolutely. That's Gordon Chang. He is the author of Nuclear Showdown. A pleasure to talk to him. He is really one of the leading authorities in the entire country on North Korea. Uh, coming up, CBS News and, of course, another live update on the situation in Florida with Hurricane Irma. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.